Many, many years ago, uh, when the old Focus on the Family program was on the radio, I was listening to it one night coming home from work, and I listened to it with a little more interest than usual because a Christian author who I had read a number of his books was on and talking to Dr. Dobson. And at the end, at the very end of the program, in the last 30 seconds, Dr. Dobson said to him, tell our listeners one thing that they can pray for you about. What's one area of your life that you most need prayer? And I will never forget his response. It jolted me. He said, well, I can tell you one area we don't need prayer, and that's in our marriage. He said, my wife and I are doing great. We're doing better than we've ever done. And I don't know why that just, that statement sort of branded itself onto me. And it was less than six months later that I heard the news that this man had gone off into adultery and his ministry and his testimony was ruined. I say that not to embarrass him. He's actually taken that story and tried to use it for the glory of God now. But I, I, I mentioned that to say to you that there is a grave danger lurking in our moments of success and victory. It's true in life. It's true in our spiritual life. It's true in warfare. I think of Napoleon, who had won a, a tremendous streak of military victories, and he became comfortable in that. He became complacent. And in 1812, he invaded Russia with more than 500,000 soldiers. Some reports say it was as much as 650,000 soldiers, and they were crushed and only 10,000 of his soldiers survived. Why? Because he didn't plan. He thought he had it figured out. He was in a place of comfort, and that led to complacency. And in moments like that, when we think we're doing well, when everything is going fine, in those moments, we, we tend to let down our guard. We tend to rest in that victory without realizing it's a false sense of security. And it's then that we become most vulnerable. The Bible warns us of this many times. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. I put the amplified version there for you. It says, therefore, let the one who thinks he stands firm, immune to temptation, being overconfident and self-righteous, take care that he does not fall into sin and condemnation. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty or arrogant spirit before the fall. Last Sunday, we were in 1 Kings chapter 18, and there we saw together that Elijah experienced this staggering victory over the 450 prophets of Baal up on the top of Mount Carmel. And to make that victory even sweeter, at the end of chapter 18, where we didn't quite get to last week, we're told that God once again brought rain upon the earth after that terrible three-and-a-half-year drought. And that was just sort of the, the cherry on top of this incredible public visible victory that Elijah had just experienced. And we might be tempted to, to close the book and sort of nod off to sleep and go, oh, what a, what a wonderful, happy ending to the story. But I have to tell you, the story isn't over. There's still chapter 19. And we turn the page to chapter 19. And I invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 19. As we turn there, we we encounter a moment in the life of Elijah that in the blink of an eye takes us from the mountaintop to the valley. It takes us from victory to defeat. 
And I'll tell you, you read 18 and 19 back to back, and the sheer contrast between those two chapters is, is so abrupt and so extreme that it almost gives you whiplash. It's, it's hard to believe that we're reading about the same person. By looking at these two chapters, we can learn a lot about not only the frailty and the weakness of man, but more importantly, I hope, we can also learn about the loving grace and patience of God when we find ourselves in those moments of failure and discouragement and despair. You know, I'm so thankful the Bible doesn't gloss over the down times in the lives of those who are often referred to as great heroes in the Bible. And I've been guilty of referring to people in the Bible as a, as a hero or a great man or woman. And I would submit to you, if they were here with us today, they would, they would chastise us for doing that. There are, there are no heroes in the Bible besides the Lord Jesus. No, men and, no, no man or woman in the Bible is, is a hero. But I'm glad that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat or leave out the hard times, the down times, the failures of all of those people. The Bible shows us the good and bad. It shows us the triumphs and the failures, the victories and the defeats. But what makes this event in Elijah's life so important and so relevant to us is that what Elijah went through here is something that, listen, every one of us will experience in life. Most of you have already been there. Some of you are there right now. The rest of you will be there one day. And so with those words as introduction, I hope that they will cause us all to sit up and pay very close attention to what we're about to read. Because we can all gain tremendous insight and encouragement from these verses. I don't care if you're 5 or 15 or 55 or 85. We can all learn from this today. In chapter 18, we saw Elijah as a man of godly obedience, a man of bold faith, a man of powerful prayer, a man of great victory. But in chapter 19, the frailty and the fear of Elijah comes to the surface. He's gone from a bold victory over hundreds of false prophets to now trembling in terror before just one person. Psalm 107.26 kind of describes these highs and lows. It says, they rose up to the heavens, then sunk to the depths. Their courage melted in their anguish. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. And I'll tell you, that perfectly describes life in this fallen world. The highs and the lows. And unless we call out to the Lord in our trouble, we have no hope. We have no hope of making it through this life in any other way but a shambles. So it's a healthy reminder, I think, that none of us can live on the mountaintop of the Christian experience all the time. And while our lives are categorized, characterized rather by, by ups and downs, by highs and lows, by hot and cold, by on and off, by faithful and unfaithful, the good news is we have a God who always remains faithful through it all, through it all. Someone once said, and these words are just incredible to me. I've read them so many times and they still hit me every time. He said, it's not difficult to believe that God loves us when we're on the heights of Mount Carmel, but it's not so easy when like Elijah in the desert, we lie stranded. 
or as dismantled and rudderless vessels we roll in the trough of the waves. Most necessary it is for our peace and comfort to know and believe that the love of God abides unchanging as himself. Well, surely we have to ask the question, how in the world did Elijah go from the heights of victory on Mount Carmel to the depths of despair in the desert? Well, we're given that answer in chapter 19, verse 1. It says this. I remember uh, Ahab was the wicked king who ruled the land at that time. The Bible says he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all those who came before him, and he married Jezebel. You know, the name should kind of make your hair curl a little bit. Verse 1, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, in other words, on the, on the mountain, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You know, I, I can't help sort of loving the fact that she adds the time part at the end. I mean, that's like, a, that's like next level mafia. That's not just saying, I'm going to kill you. It's like, by tomorrow at 3.15, you're, you're dead. And so King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, sent this warning to Elijah. And Elijah knew it wasn't an idle threat because we've already been told in the scriptures that Jezebel had sort of put this hit squad together and she was sending them around the country, rounding up all the prophets of the Lord and putting them to death. And she had already put to death many of the Lord's prophets. So this threat fell on Elijah's ears with a great weight. But then we have to stop and say, why would Elijah worry about that? We flip back to chapter 18 and we skim the events again and we go, Elijah's not going to worry about this. He just stood his ground against 450 false prophets. So surely we would never expect to read the words that we read in the next verse, verse 3. And he was afraid and ran for his life. I say it again for the fourth time. He, faced, he just faced 450 false prophets who the Bible says, by the way, were armed with lances and spears and could have killed him at any moment. And he stood there unflinching. He's just seen God's mighty power fall from heaven in the form of fire and consume the altar. And yet, he's cowering before one woman. Now, in a way, I understand this. I'll have to admit, there are some women who scare the life out of me. I've, I've met a few. I'll just leave it at that. But how could it be? How in the world could it be that this bold man of faith could have such a staggering, visible, powerful victory one moment, and the next minute he could fall into fear and defeat so quickly? Well, the fact that it can happen and does happen ought to wake us up. The Bible gives us so many examples of this. Think about the enormous victory of faith that, that Noah demonstrated as he continued day after day, month after month, to build that ark when not one drop of rain had ever fallen on the earth. Wow, what a display of bold faith and faithfulness. And then think about the disgraceful state that Noah ended up in when he got drunk. I think about the incredible victory of faith that Abraham demonstrated when he left his home and everything he knew and set out on a journey of blind faith to follow God in obedience wherever God led him. And then think about how deceitfully Abraham behaved 
when he lied about his wife in Egypt to save his own neck. Think about David as he triumphs over Goliath and the Philistine armies. And then think about David as he becomes embroiled in adultery and murder. You see, it's only a short walk from victory to defeat. Can I say that again, in case you were in the Bahamas there, drifting off? It's only a short walk from victory to defeat. This is why I've, I've warned us all so many times from up here and prayed that God would spare us from dumb decisions. Because folks, you and I are only a few dumb decisions away from ruining our lives. You say, that's an overstatement, Phil. I, I would beg to differ. I've seen it happen again and again and again. Ah, this one little thing, pff, nobody's going to find out. It's not a big deal. Before you know it, I'm getting the call. And I don't mind that. I'm not saying that. I, it just breaks my heart. Life is in shambles. Family, children, testimony, everything, gone. Because of a couple dumb Decisions that were made without the intervention and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's a short walk from victory to failure for all of us. And I don't say that to discourage us. It would be like someone coming to you when you're heading out for a walk one night and your neighbor says, hey, by the way, watch out. There's a, there's a manhole cover missing up there. Be careful. You, you wouldn't get angry and go, oh, you're so depressing. You'd say, wow, thanks. I'm going to look out for that. All the men and women in the Bible, all of them, were prone to this same kind of fall. Someone once said, the best of men are men at best. No matter how richly gifted they may be, how eminent in God's service, how greatly honored and used of him, let God's sustaining power be withdrawn from them for a moment and it will be quickly seen that they are earthen vessels. No man stands any longer than he is supported by divine grace. The most experienced saint, if left to himself, is immediately seen to be as weak as water and as timid as a mouse. Elijah fell from victory to defeat, and it's written for us in this page is not to point a finger of blame at him, but to be a warning for us. We have to be careful, folks, not to expect too much of others and not to expect too much of ourselves. I've begged you, don't put me on a pedestal. I will let you down. Some of you looking at me right now, I've already let you down. But you're here, you love me. It's okay, we understand, that's, that's life. We cannot put people on a pedestal. It makes me very nervous when I see the Christian community celebrating some figure above all others, and he gets all the headlines and all the magazine covers and all the television press, makes me very nervous. Because I want to tell you, no man or woman should be placed in that position because they will fall. They will fail at some point. We all do. Everyone has their breaking point. And it's not something I've paid enough attention to in my own life until recent years. And I paid the price. I had a tremendous breakdown a few years ago. You know, y'all loved me through all of that. But it's a danger. And I'm not, I'm not standing up here this morning 
giving you a textbook sermon. I can show you the scars. This is dangerous. Well, after all that had, had happened in Elijah's life the past three and a half years, I mean, wow, he had been through it. Running for his life from Ahab, hiding in the desert, having to live out in the wilderness, surviving this drought, being faced by all these evil prophets. Elijah hit his breaking point. He was exhausted physically, he was exhausted spiritually, and he was exhausted emotionally. Because he was at that low point, it only took one message from someone to be the straw that broke the camel's back and send him running away in fear. So I would encourage you this morning, we should never drift too far from the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 when he reminds us to always put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And as Paul also says, we cannot afford to be unaware of Satan's schemes because he knows the opportune moments to strike in your life and mine. Satan's probably not going to strike me up here between 10.30 and 11.45. Probably not. But boy, does he know my moments. Does he know my moments. Those moments when discouragement sets in and tiredness and feelings of being overwhelmed and Satan just steps in and has a heyday with me if I will let him. One of the darts that Satan often uses, I found this in my own life and I find it so common with others, is discouragement. All he has to say to us is, what you're doing for the Lord doesn't matter. It's not making any difference. You're wasting your time. And suddenly we're, we're thrown into this state of, of despair and doubt. All it takes is one phone call bringing bad news. All it takes is that one doctor's report. That wayward child. That crushing financial pressure. That's all it takes. And the heights of praise we experienced on Sunday dissolve into fear and defeat in the blink of an eye. And sometimes it doesn't even take that much. We can even be plunged into one of these Elijah moments from really nothing more than allowing ourselves to get overly tired. You know, there are bad things that happen to us when we allow ourselves to get physically run down. We make poor decisions. We don't think clearly. Our focus shifts from heavenly things to earthly things. We, instead of focusing on, as Jaron said this morning, instead of focusing on the rest and the renewal and the hope that we have in Christ, we focus on all of our problems. When we get tired, that amplifies. It amplifies. And that's exactly where Elijah was. In chapter 18, he was walking by faith. But now, in chapter 19, he's walking by sight. His focus has shifted. If God could defend him against 450 prophets, God could certainly take care of him against one evil woman. But that's exactly what reaching this point of Complacency from a great victory and tiredness will bring into our life. It changes your focus entirely. And folks, the wrong focus in our Christian walk can put us on a very rapid downward spiral. We already read that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now verse 4 of 1 Kings 19 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, 
and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. In other words, Lord, I've had enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. You see how low Elijah has sunk so quickly after looking at the the great victory in chapter 18 last week? It's almost impossible, as I said, to, to believe that we're talking about the same person. But that's what happens when we reach these points in life and we're not guarding ourselves and we don't have others to guard us. You can be so physically and emotionally and spiritually worn down that you've just got no desire to even go on another day. And in those times, another lie that Satan will convince you of is that God doesn't care about you anymore. He'll convince you that you've become such a disappointment to God that he's given up on you. And I'll tell you, we don't read that at all in the Bible. We get that from our own misguided thinking and experiences. We've all given up on other people. And there have been other people who've given up on all of us at some point. We're frail, broken humans. And so we project that onto our Heavenly Father, and it is so wrong. To believe the lies of Satan that, boy, you've really blown it this time. God has crossed you off his list. He wants nothing to do with you anymore. You're of no use to him anymore. He's given up on you. Folks, listen, when those lies begin to come our way, we must do whatever is necessary to remember and to cling to the gracious, unending love of the Lord for us. It's something I still can't quite comprehend. It's just too big for me. Because I've never known love like that. And neither have you in this world. Never. You you name the person who has loved you the most your whole life, I guarantee you their love has come and gone at times. And so we have a hard time believing that God, God has love for us that never wavers. It never fails. Someone once said, There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. I'll tell you, I wrestled with that one for a long time, theologically. I just wondered about that second part. But you know what? You read all the failures in the Bible, and you see the graciousness of God. I was meeting Thursday, I think, with a young man that I try to help disciple and a young pastor, and he was uh, dealing with some of this stuff and just really struggling with it. And I was able to speak these words to him, words of encouragement, that no matter how badly you're hurting, no matter how weak you are, no matter how useless you may think you are to God right now, his love for you has not changed. And I would say that to you this morning. His love for you has not changed. And we see that displayed so beautifully here in 1 Kings 19. Look at verse 5 with me. And he, that's Elijah, lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he must have been thinking, eat what? I'm in the wilderness. Verse 6, and he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. So Elijah gets up, he eats, he drinks, And he falls right back asleep. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came back 
the second time. And if he came back, it meant, meant that he went away and gave Elijah time to rest. He came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat because the journey is too great for you. And I just can't help but say, what a, what a tender picture of the Lord's practical provision for us in our moments of weakness. God didn't stand over him and lecture him with, with a sermon and tell him he should have prayed more, read his Bible more, and memorized more scripture. God said, guy's exhausted. He hasn't eaten. Let's take care of that first. It's so beautiful. Verse 8. So he got up and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. As far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Oh, we, could, we could spend a long time there just reminding ourselves of the fact that when God feeds us, it carries us a lot further than when we feed ourselves and we try to nourish ourselves. Well, you'd think now that he's been refreshed physically, you'd, you'd think Elijah would immediately snap out of this funk that he's been in, but look at verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, you want to see a practical question here, a real-life question? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And all you have to do is listen to Elijah's reply to see how messed up his focus had become. Verse 10, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I, am the only one left, and they're seeking to take my life as well. He had reached a point of such discouragement such disheartedness that he actually believed he was the only one still serving God. He couldn't have been more wrong. And this is another lie that Satan will whisper in your ear. You'll plan some event, and, and uh, you'll be mumbling on your, under your breath, I can't believe nobody else showed up to help with this. I'm doing the Lord's work here. I guess I'm the only spiritual one at life point. Before you know it, you'll be in a real tizzy. And you'll be thinking you're really something for the Lord, and he's, uh, he's honored to have you on his team. Everybody else at LifePoint needs to get a wake-up call. It's a dangerous place to be. Folks, the, the truth is, and, and I think we know this, but I'll, I'll caution you, none of us can take any credit for doing anything for the Lord by our own diligence or faithfulness or merit. None of us. The Bible makes it clear that it's only by God's power that anything of eternal significance can be accomplished through you or me. And that is a miracle in itself. Elijah was convinced that he was the only one who'd been doing anything at all for the Lord. And what he needed more than anything else was not a lecture. It was not a slap upside the head. What he needed more than anything else was to hear God remind him of who he was so that Elijah could get his focus realigned and reset. Verse 11, then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains. Can you imagine that? And broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a still, small voice. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. I find it fascinating that not one word is recorded showing that Elijah had any kind of reaction to this tornado, whatever it was, or to the earthquake, or to the fire. And yet, his reaction to the still small voice is highlighted here. That really hits me. And when he heard the voice of God, he pulled his cloak, his mantle up over his face and, and hid his face. Why? Because he knew that he was in the presence of God. And like Moses on the mountain meeting with God, he could not bear to look upon God's glory. All of those big events came and Elijah was listening for the Lord. And yet it was in that still, small voice that he found what he needed. I won't make too much of this, but I personally find it a little unsettling at how so many Christians today are always looking for big moves of God. They're always talking about wanting God to come in some mighty display of power. God, send your fire down. Really? I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure. We get awful cocky sometimes in things we think. I don't believe I want to pray that. I believe I'd rather wait for the still small voice. You see, that's where God speaks to us. We look for the big events. Oh, if we could only do this in our church. Oh, if this would only happen, if God would only show up this way, then, no, you wouldn't. Whatever follows the then, you wouldn't. I promise you. The Bible shows us that. People ask Jesus for a sign. Show us a sign. Like you mean more than I've already shown you? Show us a sign and we'll believe. But he said, not a chance. No more. No more signs. Because it's not going to change anything. For crying out loud, the Israelites saw God part the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land and saw the sea return and swallow up the entire Egyptian army. And one chapter later, they're complaining and fussing. And we're all the same way. We're all the same way. Oh, God, thank you for your greatness. You're so wonderful. And the next day, we're kicking the dog and yelling at our spouse. Don't kick your dog, please. That's a terrible illustration. Don't do that. Maybe today, I don't know, maybe today, you're waiting for an earthquake to convince you to come back to the Lord. Can I just tell you, it's probably not going to happen. Maybe you're waiting for the heavens and the earth to shake with some miraculous display of God's power so that you can get back on track. And I just tell you, it's probably not going to happen. You're more likely to hear his voice, not in that strong wind, not in that earthquake, not in that fire, but in the still, small whisper that you hear in those quiet moments with him. And I have to ask, are you longing and seeking to hear his voice? We live in a noisy world. I almost threw my phone out the window the other day. I was really close, and then I was like, well, it's kind of expensive. And so... We live in a noisy world. Every 18 seconds, people check their phone for messages. Like we've become, we're already transhuman. They're talking about all that in the future. We're, we're already glued to those things. 
We live in such a noisy world. Do you intentionally set aside time to seek after, to crave after hearing that still small voice of God? It's hard to hear today. It's hard to hear in this world. Well, quickly, another lie that Satan will try to convince you of is that after a setback like Elijah suffered, God's done with you, as I said a moment ago. He has no more use for you. He'll say, you know, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be down in this place right now. You'd be up on the mountaintop praising God. And because you're down here, God's done for you. Your usefulness is over. But the scriptures tell us otherwise again and again and again. Someone summed it up like this, and it's beautiful. No failure is final with God. No failure is final with God. And I say this quickly do we realize the arrogance that it takes for us to think that our failure is greater than God's love? That's pretty arrogant. Well, God, you fixed a lot of things, but you can't fix this one. So let me get this right. The death of Christ on the cross, the blood that he shed, the life that he promised is not enough to bring you back from where you are. Is that what you're saying? It's craziness. It's a lie from Satan. Elijah found himself in the lowest possible place, literally wanting to die. But God graciously renewed him physically. God graciously renewed him spiritually. And now God graciously renews him directionally. In another beautiful display of God's grace, we don't have time to read it, but starting in verse 15, God restores Elijah and gives him a new mission and sends him on his way with hope and promise in his heart again. And I just love this. We'll pick up there next week, but maybe that's what you need this morning. I don't know. I know some things going on with with some of you, but certainly not all. Maybe that's what you need. Perhaps you've been in a place of discouragement and defeat now for a while. You've been convinced that God has no more use for you. I want to remind you that God is a God of second chances. And folks, that's more than a cliche. Jonah blew it royally, ran away from God, refused to do his will. But then we're told, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Peter. Peter denied publicly that he didn't even know Jesus. And he thought his usefulness was over. In fact, it was so bad, he just said to the others, guys, forget it. Let's just go back to fishing. The Bible says they went out and they fished all night and they caught nothing. Professional fishermen. Fishing is horrible. It's such, a, it's such a cruel waste of time. I've spent many, many hours on the lake with my father-in-law over the years, wishing that I could swim to the shore and, and be done with the pain. I know some of you love fishing. For me, whew, it's agony. Uh, these guys fished all night. They caught nothing. And they were discouraged even more, defeated even more. And they heard someone calling to them from the shore. They looked up and they strained their eyes. And who was it? It was Jesus. What was he doing? Lecturing them? No, he was cooking breakfast for them. Again, such a practical, beautiful provision of God in our moments of need. And after they ate, Jesus took a walk with Peter. And he wanted Peter to know that Peter loved the Lord. He wanted Peter to express that. And then Jesus said to him, Peter, 
Feed my sheep. Peter, come on, son. You blew it. It's okay. I got a new mission for you. Come on, I'm restoring you to usefulness again. Maybe there's someone right now who needs to hear that. You can remember a long time ago in the distant, hazy past when you were on the mountaintop with God. I mean, you enjoyed such sweet fellowship with him. You were talking about him to others. It's like you were floating. You were just so near to him. Your relationship with him was so precious, so sweet, but now you feel a million miles away. Maybe you open the Bible, maybe you don't. I bet if you do, you just read the words and they just roll right off. They mean nothing now. I said before, I'll say again, the Bible tells us, even when we are faithless, he will remain faithful. I close with this verse, Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the focus in that verse? You're not going to carry it on. I'm not going to carry it on. I'm going to blow it. And so when we're in those moments, the best thing we can do is run to him. Run to him. As the song said this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's the only way to reset our compass. It's the only way. Run to him. What a beautiful example we've seen this morning of just how gentle and caring and understanding the Lord is in our moments of our greatest weakness. He understands. He remembers that we're dust. Folks, in those times, if we just continue day after day to press on and to turn to him. If you don't get anything from him today, get up and press on tomorrow. Turn to him tomorrow. Do that a thousand times if you have to. I close with this true story of a young pastor who went to hear a very well-known preacher who happened to be preaching in his town that weekend. And after the service, this, this renowned pastor was standing up front And there was a long line of people coming to talk to him and ask for prayer and share their needs. And and this young pastor thought, you know, I can probably learn a lot on how to interact with people just by listening to this man. And so he positioned himself close enough just so that he could hear what this pastor was saying. When the first person finished talking to the pastor and pouring out their heart, this preacher looked at them and with earnestness, In his eyes and his voice, he said two words, keep on. The next person came. They poured out their heart. They talked, and the pastor listened, and at the end, he looked at them, and he said, keep on. And the third, the fourth, every person, the pastor shared words of comfort and prayed, but the last two words he said to them every time was keep on. This young pastor admitted Later, he said he thought to himself, is that all this great man has to say to people? Keep on? He said, then it dawned on him. There's probably no two greater words you can say to hurting believers. Keep on. He will be faithful. 
Are you there this morning? You're in the place of Elijah. Sitting there just saying, Oh, it's enough, Lord. It's enough. I'm done. Listen to me. Keep on. Keep on. Run to him. You'll find rest. You'll find a hope. You'll find renewal. You'll find nourishment, refreshment, peace, and joy that you long for. Run to him. He will never let you down. Keep on. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see